Yes, I understand. It must have been terrifying. So many unexplainable things have happened here. All right, episode 13. Lucky number 13. Is it lucky? (laughs) In this case, I think so. Yeah, you're right. This was a really good episode, actually. So we had Justin Berenger on today. Alexis, do you want to kind of like talk about how we came across or were introduced to him? Yeah, so Justin Berenger works at Sterling High School, which is where John Rosser went to high school and worked for a little bit before coming to Overbrook. So he has a lot of connections over there. And so... As John has been listening to the podcast, he... As he should. Yeah, especially because he's been on it twice, so he better be listening. Um, He was saying how he had this guy at Sterling that he think would like, that he thought would be great on the podcast. And I was just kept telling him like, yeah, yeah. Cause we had so many other people that we knew we wanted to be on it that we knew personally. And then I was talking to John at soccer and I was like, Oh yeah. What's the name of that guy you were um, telling me about from Sterling. He's like, Oh, Justin Barringer. So he got me connected with Justin. Um, and I'm so happy that he did because I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. With him today. Yeah. I really am happy too just his like perspective uh and his like honesty and I feel like he was giving like talking about a lot of things that like it was interesting because he was saying a lot of anecdotes that were like to him nonchalant like yeah "Yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal but like if you really think about it and he recognizes this too in the episode like it's not a big deal to him because he's just gotten so used to this being the way that his life is as like a black male or he says he's biracial and I mean that in itself is just horrible and sad but that it was just really interesting yes especially because the experiences that he was explaining and that you'll all hear later in this episode um were like something that things that aren't normal that is sad that he had to accept as normal and um it was it was just very like he this is also the first time either of us have ever actually talked to him. Like my communication with him was through text and it was just to ask him to be on it. So for him to be so open and honest with us, mm-hmm. like right off the bat, I thought was just awesome. Yeah. yeah. I think you become, it's, it is really crazy. That was the first time I'd ever spoken to him. First of all, I wasn't even ever texting with him and my computer was like, being wonky so then I just like jumped into this conversation with this guy and I think it was you know like really great how candid that he was with these essentially two strangers yes Um, but um I think you become like so accustomed to what is your norm that you forget like it's not the norm and I was thinking so whenever like my parents and I and my brother obviously would go on vacation I could put money on it and I knew it and it would always make me so angry that my dad would get pulled aside every single time to be checked um, more. Um, and 
my dad and my mom, my brother and I would have to wait for him because they would take him into that room. And, and like that became so normal to us because we started going to the airport earlier because we just knew that that was going to happen. Right. And like, that's not normal or okay or fair, but because it was our norm, we considered it like, well, it is what it is. Yeah. But I think, you know, the more that we hear these stories, we're recognizing like, no, (laughs) that shouldn't be accepted. Right. And I think that's what my reaction to his stories were, was like, no, that shouldn't be, he shouldn't have to sit there and be like, well, it's just my normal because went through is not normal, but it's normal for him. So Mm -hmm. it, it's just such a weird concept. Um, Because you don't want to seem like the, you don't want to seem like the martyr or like the woe is me person. But at the same time, like, yeah. Said like, I'm not telling you the story for woe is me. Like I'm fine. And I was like, no, you should say it as well as me. <laughs> right, right, right. It was really cool. Yeah. So yeah, shout out to John Rosser. Thank you for that, because that was awesome. Um, in other news, just wanted to pick your brain about a question. Oh, boy. So I got my hair done last week, and my hairdresser was telling me this story, and I didn't really have I didn't know what to say really like and I just want to see what you think so she was saying that she used to work at a a hair salon um I don't know can I say it like I'm sure they're not listening right so she used to work at JC Penney's and that's actually where like I met her so uh, she's been a hair my hair person since I was in seventh grade so she's like at this point, like more of a friend too, that also my hair hairdresser and she does my mom's hair too. So I met her when she was working at JCPenney's and she was, um, had been there forever. And then she left when she started to have like more kids, whatever. So she works from home now and she was telling me, but her sister still works at JCPenney's. And she was saying that these two girls that are kind of new, um, work there and that her sister works there. And then there's this woman that works there who there's these two other women that work there who had worked there, but ever since my hairdresser worked there. So for like a really long time. Mm -hmm. And the one lady, I guess had posted on Facebook and my hairdresser's not even really sure about what the joke was. She was like, honestly, I didn't get the joke. I feel even weird saying the joke because I don't get it. And I was like, okay. She said it was something along the lines of like, Black lives matter, so do black beans or something like that. I don't, she was very unclear about what the joke was. She was like, again, like I said, she's like, I don't understand what the joke was. By the time she went to look, the post was deleted. So it was the hairdresser that had posted this like meme or this saying, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Another, the other hairdresser liked it. And so whatever that goes on. I guess this woman thought that like she was posting on her personal Facebook, whatever. So the two other girls, the newer girls went right to corporate with it. And both of the women got fired. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
I wish there was like, I guess, more background onto like what the post or like the joke and information actually was. Mm. Right. Because like, I mean, I think that what from what we know, it sounds weird, like black beans matter. Like, yeah, the whole thing just sounds strange. Um, but I think that so many corporations aren't even like, I don't know, like they hear something that someone takes offense to and you're just like gone now. Um, right. And that's kind of where I was like torn on what I was I was like, I, I, I'm torn because it's interesting that there was like no warning to these women. Right. Right. It was just an instant, you know, you're terminated. Mm-hmm. And then my hairdresser was saying, you know, they've been there as long as I've been there, as long, like, since I had started there. Um, and when we started, there was no social media. So it's not like they got a, this is what you can post, this is what you can't post type of thing. But then at the same time, like, well, yeah, like, what was the joke? Because I'm, I, I don't know. Right. And I think... But I think this is also why it's so important for, like, like if corporations are going to take this strong stance, I think it's like, okay, that's great. But you then have to give all of your employees, like, top to bottom, some type of diversity and equity training. Mm, yeah. Like, right. like how can you you can't take a hard stance on equity and diversity and like okay well you posted that so you're fired Mm. but you're not giving them the trainings and the resources and the material to better themselves because you're saying the social media is new and just everything's so touchy now it's like there definitely has to be more to it than just because then also you're firing these people and they are just going to go and work somewhere else to keep making the same what seems to be inappropriate joke Mm -hmm. so you know you do the diversity training and not that that's going to solve all of it but i maybe policies need to be updated right like more convert and I think this is the whole thing like more conversations have to be had you can't just go into this I feel like we've talked about this before this cancel culture where you're just like firing people and they're losing their jobs and their livelihood Mm -hmm. no one's educating them or helping them or talking to them about why that was incorrect yeah that's a great point that's so true because now you've just cut this person off and put them back out into the world. Not like any better, actually worse. Right. Because now they're probably even more upset because they're mad at those girls and like, who knows what they're posting now. At the same time, I was saying to her though, I was like, it's interesting to watch other professions be held to the standard that teachers are held to. Like that was my thought that had slipped my mind. So yeah, it's the, it was the, like, after we had like talked it through and then I was like, you know, we are always held to that standard because it's always felt 
not my and my dad always told me like well the world's not fair but it always just felt unfair that as a teacher I needed to have this professional look on my social media all the time like don't post something like this or don't post something like that or don't like this or don't like that or you know like even now on twitter i get like nervous about things that i like or retweet and um because that's been ingrained in us since we started teacher education programs like mm-hmm. you always have to present yourself in this teacher professional way as if your students are following you all the time right now there's all these ways that you can make sure a student you know isn't following you if you're private or you know your posts on facebook aren't public but to so yeah to see other careers and jobs now holding people accountable to what they post on facebook um i think is very interesting but then it's also like oh i don't know I think it's unfair for that specific situation because like you said that that has been ingrained in us since we started to wanting to become a teacher and then even in the beginning of every school year I feel like we get told again like be careful what you post and everything like that in our first day of school trainings and things and like it necessarily for those two women like wasn't ingrained in them so I don't know yeah I really don't know I I find, I think social media is just hard no matter what, like, because you say you have this freedom of speech, but then you can totally be dragged and fired from your job for something that you posted. Right. Like, it's I don't know, the whole thing is fine line. Yeah. Like a very fine blurred line. Yeah. It's a tricky, tricky situation with social media. Yeah. Did you watch all of the Oprah thing? Yeah. That was really good. It was really good. Um, That's on Apple TV. So if you guys are looking for something, um, Alexis, you had said like you were watching it. And I kept putting it off because I'm trying to finish this stupid show that I shouldn't even be watching. (laughs) And I was like, that has zero zero substance to it (laughs) but I kept putting off the Oprah thing and then you had said you're watching and I was like all right you know what forget it I need to pause this garbage and watch something that will like make my brain actually move yeah I I don't even know what made me finally like start to watch it. I think I was just like kind of looking for something else to watch. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not doing anything. I might as well just like start it and see what it is. Um, and then I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And my, all of my reactions, like every five minutes was just, oh my gosh, wow. Oh my gosh, wow. Especially through the first two episodes with Emmanuel Acho. Um, yeah. But even with Doctor, the second episode with Dr. Kendi, even with like all of the episodes, I just was, was definitely learning something and mm-hmm. found the realness to be so inspiring. Maybe I don't know if that's. Yeah, right. no, I think it was. Well, I think 
um, I could watch it again, to be honest with you, because there, I think there was so much to say, but like, I found the Brian Stevenson one very inspiring. Um, so, and I think maybe that's why you feel that way too, because like it ended on that, on his episode. Yeah. Um, but overall, yeah, I did feel, I felt most inspired by that one. Um, and then most shocked, yeah, by the Emmanuel Acho ones. I mean, when that man, a man like admits, like I am a racist and mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever actually heard anyone say that out loud. Yeah. Like I'm a racist and he just said it. And he was like, I've realized that I'm a racist. And I was like, oh, whoa. <laughs> like, it wasn't like, what I was expecting because he's the first guy to pop up. Yeah, right. And it's not like we're hanging around clan members all the time that are admitting that they're racist. So, <laughs> oh, And even Oprah was like, oh, like, welcome. Uh, I feel like you wrote in that you, um, that you are a racist. <laughs> And he was like, yeah, yeah, like, I'm a racist. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just was like, what is happening? But, yeah, you know. It felt so casual. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I'm then he went on to, like, explain all the reasons why. And it was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> right. And he was, and it wasn't even like he was doing these, cra- like, he called himself a racist because of. He has racist tendencies. I don't yeah. think he's, again. Yeah he's not overtly racist where he's using racial slurs and beating right. people up, but he has racist tendencies where he's, you know, whether it's subconsciously doing these things that are stemming from a prejudice and he, he's acting on them. Right. Like when he was saying like, you know, I noticed that I was, um, I would cross the street mm-hmm. when a black man was walking towards me. And I think that that's, him being able to admit those things are what so many people still need to admit that implicit bias and that prejudice that they have that Justin Barringer talks Mm -hmm. about the episode of if you can't admit that you cross the street when a black man is walking towards you or if you're a girl and you clutch your purse, you know, a little bit tighter or whatever little things you do. If you can't admit that to yourself, it's hard to do, but then no one can make progress because you're still doing those things. Right. I heard a quote and I thought it was great for the pod. And it said, conversation (laughs) is a catalyst for change. If anything, I've grown and changed from this. Oh, absolutely. Just hearing different perspectives and different people and outlook. Yeah, the pers- that, like that we never would have heard of all of these if we didn't start this. No, not at all. Like from Frankie's episode to Kareem's to just now with Justin, like all of these right. different stories that like we may necessarily may never have heard. Uh, my name is Justin Barringer. I am born and raised. Um, in Woodbury, New Jersey, um, it's where I spend most of my days uh, sitting on sitting out, max and relaxing. All no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's just now my my son's. I've been giving my son. He, we've been watching Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I thought uh, it was a rite of passage. So that's yes, cool. that's stuck on mine. So you could edit out the corny part of that, but um, oh, I might keep it. <laughs> 
he heard me say it, so he's probably gonna come down and start trying to sing it. Um, <laughs> but um, I was born and raised in New Jersey, in uh, Woodbury, New Jersey. Um, I currently live in Sickleville, New Jersey. I am a teacher, a history teacher at Sterling High School. Um, I am also a coach at Sterling. I coach basketball and soccer at Sterling. Formerly also softball. I am uh, um, biracial. Um, so my father is African-American my mother is Italian American and, um, I'm married, uh, to a beautiful woman for the past, well, how long has it been? 11 years, I think. Uh, uh, we have a wonderful seven-year-old son who is in love with Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and, <laughs> um, and we're just doing COVID together. <laughs> is your wife black or biracial or white? Yes, and that's actually an interesting thing because my wife is um, African American, but actually she's not. She's her her parents are Jamaican um, and Dominican, so her mother is Jamaican and her father is Dominican. Okay, Dominican and like maybe some other things I don't know. So we're very eclectic, uh, very very got a lot going on in our family. We've had this resurgence of. Black Lives Matter, and it's definitely been a hot topic, and it's an interesting topic as to how people approach um, that conversation of Black Lives Matter, but what has, what has kind of been your experience as a Black male living in Woodbury, New Jersey, um, in America? Um, Living in Woodbury or living in Sickleville? I think those are, they're, there, it's um, living in Woodbury growing up. I, I think I would have, I think living in Woodbury prepared me to kind of uh, tackle um, some of these nuances in the world from both sides racially and then trying to, and then accepting more of, you know, my race, you know, being, um, being biracial, you know, you really identify as being black because that's really what people see, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't, you don't get a chance to explain yourself um, with, the, with the one drop rule. And, and for a long time, I didn't understand that. So for the longest time, I didn't understand that people really see me as being a African-American, right? Because right. you know half my family's white, you know, mm-hmm. and um, when they say you don't see color, I really didn't understand it as a, as a child growing up. Um, what that really was, because like I said, my family is very diverse. Um, but living now as an adult with this resurgence, really, for me, it's not any different. Um, I've always been aware of my skin color. I've always been aware of um, just, you know, my surroundings. And those haven't been in any way threatened since the resurgence. But I think being a black male and having a relationship with a lot of different ethnicities, whether they be white, Hispanic, or, you know, so on and so forth, Asian, I think I've been a voice to be able to talk to people about how they feel about it more so than, you know, me feeling targeted because, you know, I, like I said, I don't think much of my circumstance has changed. I just think I've been able to have a more open dialogue with more people. You said that you feel like you're growing up in Woodbury prepared you more for, you know, what is happening in the mm-hmm. world or how, how do you, how? 
Well, because I think I was able to see a lot of both sides. I was, uh, you know, I'll give you one thing. Being around, just being candid, uh, a lot of white people, you understand some of the nuances of prejudice and Mm -hmm. racism, right? So you know that, um, I guess, people are territorial, right? Um, And then people have certain fears, but you can understand, I like, it was kind of like, I admire Martin Luther King because you know how to push, you know how to pull back when it comes to challenging people with race because you really understand how other, like how white people think or how, mm-hmm. how other people think, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when you, you know, ascribe somebody as being racist or you understand different prejudices and then you understand where you have to, you know, um, push people and take them out of their comfort zone and then where you have to kind of pull back and not be aggressive so that you can make progress. I think that's one thing it allowed uh, me to understand is how to navigate through that. And then even having my own, we didn't, I didn't really, wasn't really able to do that with my mom's side of the family, but even also being proud of who you are, right? So like, you know, being a black male, my family was very, my dad's side of the family was very proud and um, their establishment there and what they've done and who they are. So it made you not, you know, at times want to apologize for being black, you know? Mm. Yeah, because that has been a running theme that we're hearing with a lot of people or that I'm seeing a lot of is people saying, you know, that they constantly feel like they've had to make themselves smaller to make Mm. other people more comfortable. Mm. Um, Growing up or even now, you know, or growing up more so, did you experience any sort of like overt racism directed towards you? Um, You know, my parents told me some things that I wasn't aware of. And, you know, I've been, you know, I've been, um, I guess, profiled and targeted by police officers. I remember, you know, being picked out uh, uh, some things, you know, just because I was the only black kid um, involved Mm. in that, um, hanging around a bunch of white kids. Um, I was the only one that was, you know, it's it's funny. It's it's something as simple as like growing up. I remember the first time I experienced that was like jaywalking. That's why my parents had a problem. Is because a, a police officer wrote me a ticket for jaywalking, and I'm wow, like, wow. I'm sitting there looking at all my other friends left, and they they they're I'm the only one that stopped, and wow. thing that is very very elementary that we did all the time, and I don't know what it was, but my parents had like a fit, and they actually kind of went to the uh, you know the the municipality and like kind of like voiced a complaint, you know because that, that was just signal out. And I don't want to feel like, oh my gosh, you know, woe is me for that. But that was the first time I kind of experienced that. And my parents kind of walked me through that of like the police officer that they were dealing with. You know, it's like, you get targeted, like if you're, you're pulled over or something like that, I would try to tell my friends sometimes, I'm like, you don't understand. You know, I get pulled over all the time. And I could say maybe once or twice it was definitely justified of to why I got pulled over. But I remember one time getting pulled over and I didn't even have the ability to speed. And they just pulled me over for something, I guess, just to really run my tags and to check in. Mm. It worked out, but I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of used to it. Mm. Um, but um, you said, I'm getting back to the original question was how have I been targeted? Like, uh, uh, my experience growing up. 
Is that what the question was? Well, it was like if you had experienced overt racism, and I think that just getting targeted, be, like getting a ticket for jaywalking, I think, <laughs> I think that's an example, right? I think that that's crazy. Like, what year was that? Yeah, I, I was in like, um, I was in, I was in uh, middle school. And wow. Yeah, I was in middle school. And it was, uh, <laughs> just kidding. That is mind blowing. Yeah, it, it was terrible. I, I'm sitting there like, what? You know, and. <laughs> Like I said, I am not trying to be like I'm. Yeah, you right. Call me. I'm real light skin. I'm very non-threatening. Let's just be clear. <laughs> so I'm sitting there like I'm not trying to say, "Oh, woe is me and my troubles," you know, because I got pulled over at jaywalking. But I always thought that was very fun. Is my parents like kind of walk me through some of that stuff, and my dad just had to prepare me and always say, "You have to. You have a double conscience, you know, um, because you're not." you don't, you're not afforded the luxury of just kind of doing whatever you want to do or even doing what everyone else does. I mean, I don't know. I guess you become so desensitized to some of this stuff because you've been saying it to your friends for so long. That is like, it just feels like a normal. Yeah. It feels commonplace to know that you've been kind of like targeted out or singled out for, you know, certain things or not given certain things, you know what I mean? Which is sad, but I think that's where a lot of this, like, where a lot of white people or people that weren't really aware of what was going on in Mm. the country had their eyes opened. And then it's like, you know, most African-Americans are like, yeah, we've been knowing this. Like, we've been through this. And there's a lot of people like telling you about it. And now realizing it. Right. Like, we've been saying this. We've been fighting for this. And people are... I think you you I think one of the questions had to deal with the conversation, right? And yeah, I think that what this does is it's always very difficult to have a conversation about difficult or touchy subject, right? Mm-hmm. What do I just come out of the blue and have to start talking about race? You know, right. it, right. when you have the opportunity, you know what I mean? Because you know, um, motive awaits opportunity. Like I want to do this, but I need to have the opportune time to do it. It's like if you're married and you want to talk about, you know, I don't know, finances, like, do you just going to jump out and say that like right away? Cause you might, you know, you might not get the same reaction. Everything has to have like a certain, it's, it takes a certain time. So I think this is allow people to now say, Hey, I wanted to have this conversation, but every time I would try to have it, people would get defensive. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's allowing for you to be able to freely talk about these things I would always tell my friends one of the exercises that I do is I did an exercise with some of the um, people I'm close with, and I would ask them a couple of questions. I would say, you know, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are some things that people say about me when I'm not around? And what is what is something that you've always wanted to tell me, but you never had the opportunity to do it? And I I do the exercise because. When do you really have the opportune time to discuss those things without somebody Mm -hmm. taking offense to it? And that exercise is actually really, really uh, humbling because (laughs) there's some things that you didn't know about yourself that you don't want to (laughs) know. Yeah, I think that's also a lot of people like have been coming to light with things that they didn't realize about themselves through this whole thing and that they were maybe like pushing down or denying or like. People are calling them out on things. So that exercise is like actually happening to many people in real life right mm-hmm. now. So you said you had, you mentioned you have a, your son who's seven. Yes. Correct. So how have you and your wife, I mean, 
does he like so in one of our earlier episodes with um uh Samira Bar, she mentioned she has a son who's nine mm-hmm. and she was talking about how she hadn't told him yet about George Floyd and kind of this police brutality and kind of what it means and what it looks like to be a black male in America. So have you and your wife talked to your son yet about that or how do you guys approach that? Um, we haven't, well, one, him being the only child, he eavesdrops on a lot of conversations. (laughs) So he'll ask you certain things or he'll try to, and that's why you have to be careful how you talk around your kids because he'll try to um, adopt the same conversations or same, you know, philosophies or outlook uh, worldviews that you, you have, right. Or outlook as you do. And, you know, if he watches the news because those things are important and, and, you know, you become saddened by these events and you're watching them, he's only seeing what the television at times is telling them. So I had had a conversation with them and I'm like, well, I know we've never really talked about it because he really doesn't understand why somebody could not treat someone fairly, you know? And he knew that at an early age when we were in Atlanta and we went to Martin Luther King's, um, you know, church, the museum, African-American museum, um, you know, the, the MLK museum. So he understands that there are, there's racism, but I don't know if he fully knows what it is. And then if you ask him about black lives matter, you know, he'll try to say that, you know, because he's very, he's very black and white. And I'll use that, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> but he'll say, you know, well, it's saying that, you know, people really didn't care. Like black people didn't matter. And white people didn't, don't think black people really matter in, in, this, in the world. And I'm like, well, Kingston is, you know, my son's name is Kingston. Um, hence Jamaica here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's hard for him it's it's hard for him because you know he's fair-skinned as well and it's like what is he what do we have to do i don't i'm not in the ability to really have to raise my son as like he's a black he's, he's a black child in america he's the melanin of the skin but you know there are younger you know and and i'm sorry there are there are kids that you know say like if i'm a little darker you know i'm definitely more of a target you know, and I hate to like kind of use colorism there, um, but, but I'm just speaking the reality of that. So we don't really we don't really address it. We kind of try to get him to res- just respect of all people, but and also try to tell him like if you start to have him have the narrative that white people think that black people don't matter, then he's going to start growing up thinking that white people don't think black people matter in society, and I don't want that to happen. So we had right. to kind of move that over, like. No, Kingston, you know, that's not how it is. There's certain incidents that have been perpetuated that now people are starting to say, hey, you have to matter to more people so that these things don't happen anymore. I think it's just hard to explain that to kids because they are so black and white. So when they're Mm -hmm. seeing a statement like Black Lives Matter, they take that so literally like it's hard to unpack that. Yeah. whole thing to such a young child correct because there's so much there in that one saying but they're just seeing it as what it says and that's mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and to process more of that you know no mm-hmm. not all 
white people think that right they'll just hear like you're saying they'll just hear the black lives matter part mm-hmm. and like justin you were saying you know well white people don't think that black lives matter so they put it into those categories and that's not it's not black and white like that i, I forgot to mention like it doesn't help that i call my mom uh, a white panther because it doesn't help that my mom gets furious more so at times than I do over these <laughs> issues. And and my mom will use those terms. And if my son's listening, it's like, he's he's like, well, get mom, you know, calls my mom, get mom, get mom, get white. You know what I mean? It's like, my mom is very, um, she's very much of an advocate because she, a lot of people do, do not know she has a black husband until mm. after the fact. So she sits back and just listens to mm. how people say when they have their guard down and then she lets them go because they don't know that her whole family is black. Right. <laughs> you know, Like push, like show their cards first and then she can say, well, actually. <laughs> yeah, I remember she told me a story one time my, that she was working, my dad and my mom both work in the hospital. Yeah. They were there one day and my, they never worked the same shifts and Uh, My dad was in a new job and he was working late, like kind of overnight. And my mom happened to be working as well. And, you know, this person was, you know, talking about, I don't know, this black guy, you know, he's here late. I've never seen, he looks suspicious. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I should, you know, certain things and just being like very cautious. But it's like, oh, really? She was like, well, what was wrong about him? Just had him kept (laughs) going and, you know, just letting them go and then she's like oh okay and where was he what did he look like and they kept doing it you know and she was like oh i know who that is that's my husband (laughs) and she was like you know their jaw hit the floor because you know they felt scared and threatened and thought my dad was suspicious and this that and the third and they didn't feel comfortable him being on that floor or whatever like that and just because he was black you know these types of stories that like everyone's not like uh, these are the ones that are all coming to like these little slights, these little like moments of racism that mm-hmm. just exist in America. And like, uh, sadly, I don't know. I don't know if the, it'll ever like not exist. Right. I think um, I think the beauty now, I think one of the questions was like, you know, how do I look at this, you know, going forward? Um I think the beauty now is that people are now starting to hear experiences. And I think people have some, some people have more black friends, not that much in their proximity, but they can talk to. Right. And they're now starting to hear some of these stories because before, how would they know, you know, like Mm -hmm. they just identified these things as saying, Oh, you know, that happened, you know, here and there. But now when they're starting to real have conversations with black people and kind of like you said, you know, I had to lessen who I am at times. And they're like, well, I know you, but you mean you always had to like, you know, relinquish or like fall back a little bit and kind of conform to what everybody else is doing because mm. you couldn't fully be you. You know what I mean? Like I always right. have to cater to everyone else. And they're starting to see these things, whereas they're like, wow, I didn't know that existed. or I know you operated in that space. You know what I mean? So you are a history teacher, correct? Correct. 
What has your experience been like, you know, as a teacher? Well, first of all, are there a lot of African-American teachers in your building? Um, there is now there are, um, you have, um, you have, you know, black women, um, for the first, for a long time, it was only like, uh, me and maybe, um, a cup, like maybe one or two other, um, minority teachers essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, when, but our, our vice principal is a black guy. Um, mm. and, um, but there is now, like, there's, I think Sterling has a very, very diverse, uh, staff. Yeah, it's just so interesting because I feel like Alexis and I have really been, like, analyzing that through this podcast, mm -hmm. like, and just trying to, like, figure out why some schools lack diversity in their teaching staff and why some don't. And I still have no idea. Like I still, right. I feel like we've asked tons of people and I still don't have any sort of reasoning in my mind what, what makes the difference. Well, I think it's the same thing as, as uh, race. I'm not going to say racism, uh, but prejudice and tribalism is that you feel comfortable with people you know, right? And mm. I think a lot of times in education, especially in, you know, more established schools, it's kind of reference, right? It's like, hey, you find out about jobs based off of a reference, like, hey, you know, Sterling just got a job open up, so somebody might know somebody, and you feel comfortable with that, and just a lot of the times, those people that you're hiring are, you know, they look the same essentially yeah right, right, right. Come from the same and then you're comfortable with that because you know when you're hiring you know it's just like anything you know it's, it's hard for people to really want to love diversity if they don't really have a heart or like a vision for that or they still they see the need right, right. Mm. and then do you have access like do people of color or like black people do they even know these jobs are posting? Do they have access to like the knowledge of, you know, getting on that and really applying and have that many? And then, you know, you have to say, are they qualified? You know, are the people that are coming qualified? And sometimes it is like nepotism and, you know, like I said, tribalism and things like that. But I just think it has to deal with like access and um, familiarity and, and things like that. So, you were saying recently there's been more diversity. What about your, I don't really know much about the student population at Sterling. So mm -hmm. is that like a diverse student body? I'd like to think uh, Sterling is pretty diverse. Um, yeah, I'd like to think Sterling has a pretty diverse um, student population. Did you struggle or feel like, or do you still, I feel like kind of this extra pressure to support those minority students? Um, I think I've always had a heart for giving them a space, right? Mm -hmm. I started off in Glassboro and I used to do a, um, like a, um, a, a, a black book club, right? Because mm -hmm. it's something that I wanted to get kids that, like I said, didn't have access. They didn't know, like, they don't know that. They don't know the 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 value of reading, right? They don't know that what types of people read and why it's important. So I, I get like a diverse group of black kids, but also the book club was more of a space for them to kind of be them, right? It was a space for them to be able to talk about things that and, and safely, but also not just talk about them, but to give 
get, get counsel, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, people or minority groups, anybody, groups, groups complain within themselves, but it's like, how are we uplifting each other, right? How is there some space where I can now, you know, go um, upward, right? So I don't want to be stuck in the same spot. So we just, it, it would revolve around books. You know, they didn't always read the book, that's for sure. You know what I mean? Because one of the kids in there, it was very diverse. You know, I had a couple of kids that were homeschooled. I had some kids that lived in the hood. You know, I had some kids that were kind of middle of the road. You know, one of them homeschooling kids that are still my friend to this day. And we still talk about this book club, actually. Um, he went on to go to Harvard, you know, wow. for, uh, like wow. he played you know, he played football and got a scholarship to go to Harvard and play oh, and got awesome. to see a lot of things. So you got that from a wow. kid whose mom, he was a single parent living in the projects or like the, what they call the hood and, you know, play basketball and, and things like that. So it was a way to show them that like they matter and there's a space for them. And I wanted to not do a large scale because I don't believe in numbers, right? I believe in quality, not quantity. So if you effectively change these couple kids, then hopefully they will in turn affect others. And then that will, um, you know, progress. Right. Right. So it, it's not uncommon for me. I've always thought that they needed a voice. They needed somebody to be able to relate to. Not that they can't relate to white teachers because teachers love, right? All kids need love. And right. there are some excellent teachers at Sterling that love kids. And they love no matter white, black, brown, doesn't matter. But I think they need a space to kind of really be open. And I always wanted to try to provide that because you can talk about things around people that look like you a little bit more than, and they'll understand than you can maybe around somebody that really doesn't have that experience. And I think a lot of, a lot of kit, a lot of students or what I find is a lot of students are actively seeking that voice. Like they and I think that's where my question about like having a diverse staff is because I know a lot of the students at Overbrook like would would value having more of a diverse staff because they're actively looking for people to talk to mm-hmm. that look like them or that have gone through some sort of struggle as them, whether that's just being black or any sort of minority at all. We have two really uh, beautiful um, black teachers. And I mean beautiful in a sense of just all around. Um, that I, that I've been working with that, you know, we've been working together recently because I do the black history month assembly and I teach African-American studies and they've kind of, you know, come alongside with me and just kind of like, we just all partner together, um, that they are, have been able to reach kids too. And I say women, because I really think that you said kids want to have that space, you know, kids want to. They want to be able to talk like that. But I think more so black girls really want somebody Mm -hmm. to identify with um, because I don't think, I think they're very misunderstood and it's difficult for me to create that space. Um, But you acknowledge it. You can only keep it at a distance, but them coming into the building and just being really solid, like I said, really beautiful um, black women have really been an asset to the school. So you were talking, Justin, about being kind of this advocate and voice for those students and always just kind of giving them a space. But right. what, would you, 
what advice, and we've asked every guest this so far, is what advice would you give to teachers who are maybe going into the school year hesitant? Because, you know, we know that this Black Lives Matter is still continuing, especially with the murder of another black male yesterday. Um, And so it's something that's still continuing. And if we want to be honest, I'm sure it's not ending anytime soon. So Mm. what advice or tips do you give to teachers who are hesitant to have that conversation with students? Um, I think the first thing I would do I would say is to check your prejudice, right? Everyone has prejudice. Everyone does. And I think that becomes a bad word because you're automatically going to feel like, well, I'm not racist, but you know, like it's, you know what I'm saying? So you have to check what are some of your prejudices? Because if you don't identify that you may have some prejudices first, then a lot of the times the conversations you're not equipped to have them one because you're not honest with yourself mm. and then when you don't become honest with yourself what you start to do is you start to defend why you are not mm. and that defense is always the one thing where it's like you're always trying to offer solutions and suggestions because you want to feel as though you're taking part you want to I want to now in my like subconsciously i'm defending why i'm not racist while i do have these prejudices so like when you do have the conversation you'll find yourself more and more trying to convince the other person why you're not prejudiced or racist because you still because you haven't identified that you still have some of those prejudices in you first and that's not a bad thing because you can say like no you know i'm afraid of this right i'm afraid of that or you know, because of people's experiences, kind of like you said, like if I've had a bad experience with someone, then obviously perception is reality to me. Right. Right. So if you don't, if you don't deal with those prejudices first and then try to identify and and be true yourself, then I don't think you're, you can have the conversation. Right. And then the second thing is, like I said, don't try to offer up solutions because that always goes back to the, 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 the perception of like the the person as being oppressed is like you're always trying to tell me what I need to do or that's the authority complex, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're not gonna be you're not gonna get a receptive audience because then it's coming to yeah, it's like you guys are always trying to tell us what to do, right? Right. And then the last part would be just listen, like really, really don't if you don't really have anything to say, it's not a problem to say just not talk about it, let them talk, right? Yeah. The conversation, a conversation could be more listening than it is, you know, it's productive when you listen a lot more because they have a lot to say. But if you don't give someone the platform, then that conversation is hard because guess what? You don't know how to fix it. You don't know their person, like you don't, you may not have the same, and you can't pretend to think that you understand what they're going through. So, like I said, if you don't deal with those things first, then you might be reluctant to have those conversations. And then when you do have the conversation or it does come about, really let that person talk and listen. And I think you'll get a lot further 
Um, because that's really all a lot of these kids want. They really yeah. want someone to listen and validate their experience. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do the first two things that you said, like identifying your own prejudice and then kind of like coming to terms with that. And then if your second part, just giving like solutions and stuff, you're not really being an active listener. No. And that's not really what they're probably looking for because you're too busy worrying about like, what's the next piece of advice you're going to give mm -hmm. or trying to defend your own prejudice or trying to come up, like trying to think of ways to like come up with solutions. And you're not actually then listening to what they're saying. You're just thinking of like your next move. Yeah, especially right. if you don't have proximity to black people, right? If you... Well, I mean, proximity is that you're you don't have a ongoing friendship or a deeper friendship with somebody that doesn't look like you. Right. Mm -hmm. Or doesn't come from the same culture. So the listening part is to listen to more of their experience and try to to really understand that, um, right. you know, from that, because like I said, we all have prejudices. Right. You have prejudice. I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. And then mm -hmm. what is racism? Racism is acting on and disenfranchising people based off of the prejudices that you have and, and assigning them to a group of people, you know? Like your perception of an entire community can't be based off of one experience or one person that you've met within that community. But perception is reality, right? True, right. <laughs> yeah, it works both ways, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but that's why, you know, some maybe some teachers, the only interaction that they're going to be having with different races or people that don't look like them is within the classroom. Yep. So that listening piece to those students is so valuable to them because that is the only interaction that they're going to have with different races or ethnicities or religions. So mm -hmm. yeah. it just speaks volumes. That was great advice. Yeah, yeah. Think, of it, think of it this way. If you're if you never took the time to really understand. Like, this was great. This is awesome. I, yeah. I love I love having these conversations. I just love building, you know, Rosser should have told you, uh, you know, I can, uh, don't give me a soapbox, you know, because then I can, you know, reel from the rooftop. Well, thank you again so much for coming on and talking with us. We loved being able to talk to you and learn yeah. from you. So this is great. Yeah, it really was. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, let's continue to keep this, uh, let's continue this going because it's a village, right? We all are kind of in the same community. And yeah. um you know, if you guys need us over, you know, down the road, you just kind of let us know. Maybe we can uh, get together and put something together collectively. You never know. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. Absolutely. I'll take you up on that. <laughs>